This is the Strike Mesh Royal Podcast, presented by the Merrimack Valley Homebrew Club. This week, we talk beer engines and Cascale, and Brett Bauer joins us to talk about his journey as a professional brewer. That and more, so stay tuned. Welcome back to Strike Mash Boil. I'm Marco, president of Merrimack Valley Homebrew Club, and I'm joined by my co-host, Phil. We've got a great show this week. Uh, Brett Bauer is joining us to talk about his career as a professional brewer and his plans for his new homebrewing setup. But first, we're, we're realizing we haven't actually done one of our quick fire uh, rounds on us. So we're going we're gonna to do one of us today. And, and Phil, you're on the spot today where we're going to ask you our quick fire questions just so folks can maybe get to know us a little bit. Does that sound good? Uh, sure. Why not? Uh, all right. So quick fire. <laughs> you're going to remember, like, we're just going to throw them at you. First thing that comes to your head. You haven't prepped for this, right? No. All right. Perfect. All right. Uh, your favorite beer style? Uh, German lager. Least favorite beer style? Uh, smoked beers. Your favorite beer ingredient? Uh, oh, boy. Tick. Pilsner tick, malt. Tick. <laughs> Your least favorite beer ingredient? Smoked malt. I'm, I'm shocked there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which piece of brewing equipment could you never live without? Control panel for my electric brewery. That makes sense. Uh, which piece of brewing equipment do you think is most overrated? Ooh. Pro, uh, this is tough because I probably own a bunch of overrated items. Um, <laughs> a recent one, I think, actually. <laughs> uh, was Would that be the beer engine, the uh, can seamer, the condenser lid? Yeah, um, just flip a coin. I guess you know what? More uh, two I'll, signs. I'll pass. Pass. Oh, God, that's a very strategic move there. Yeah. Uh, what is your dream piece of brewing equipment if money was not a factor? Uh, one of those fully loaded uh, Unitank conicals. Oh, those things are badass. Uh, which beer topic, subject, style do you wish would just go away? Pastry stouts. Desert Island beer. August Steiner Edelstoff. Very specific. Uh, when you aren't in the mood for a beer, what's your cocktail? It's seasonal. So uh, summertime, I like tiki cocktails. And in the wintertime, probably like uh, uh, old fashions. Um, yeah, so those are the quick fire questions. That's pretty good. What the hell is a tiki cocktail? Ah, just a like pineapple uh, juice and coconut rum. No, no, like a like a real mai tai or a, oh, um, something oh, like I see. That. Okay, yeah, yeah. got it. Uh, do you make those on your own? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pretty interesting. Uh, I, I've seen you post stuff before. I, I've never associated a, a tiki cocktail with it, but now now I know what to be on the lookout for. Yeah, there's like this whole subculture of the cocktail world that's all tiki drinks, and uh, it, they're not the ones you get at your bad Chinese restaurants. A real good tiki cocktail is uh, a well, finely crafted beverage. Wait, uh, listen, I take offense to that uh, because a shitty Chinese restaurant is it's part of that crappy tiki cocktail as you call it um is that wonderful experience of greasy horrible chinese food it it, it turns into a glorious drink I, I don't disagree with you but that's not a real tiki cocktail god you know it, just when you thought people could only be pretentious about beer yeah, right yeah yeah uh, this actually brings up like uh, there's some other things I want to um, ask you about because I, th I think people would be curious to hear about it. Um, and I know we've got some episodes uh, planned where we're going to actually try some of these things. But uh, something that you're a huge fan of and you didn't actually mention it when we went through your list here, but you're a big fan of real ale, uh, which right, yeah. for those that don't know, real ale is also known as cask beer. 
And you and I have been talking a lot about this. We've got a few guys in the club that love cask beer. So we've got a little project going on where we're planning on setting up a cask ale system at home for ourselves. So you want to just, A, like say, mention what a cask ale is and why we have this brilliant idea. A cask ale, a real ale, is a traditional English way of serving beer. It's a somewhat low carbonated compared to um, what we drink here in the States. So one and a quarter to one and a half volumes of CO2. Traditionally, it's served somewhere around 50 to 55 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, casks are uh, naturally carbonated and traditionally they are left open to air once you vent their vent and tap them. So uh, you really only have about two to three days before the beer goes stale and bad. You can kind of get around that a little bit with putting a breather on it and just letting some CO2 breathe back on, but you're not putting it under pressure. So your breather needs to be, you know, you're really breathing CO2 at like one PSI. Folks that um, aren't used to cask beer because it's not very common here in the U.S., although there are lots of places that try to focus on it. It's usually delivered by what's called a beer engine. Right. Which uh, people have seen, at least on TV, at the very least, you've seen one on TV at some point or in a movie. And it's that funky looking brass thing with a handle that you're pulling the handle and it's basically pumping beer into a glass. That's that's right. Yeah. And so a few guys have picked some of these up. Like we're bringing a little bit of the UK over to the US. Uh, So you've got one of these now. Where did it, where did you actually get it from? Yeah. So uh, first a beer engine is like you said, it's a hand pump. There's no forced carbonation, no forced CO2, pressurized CO2 on the cask. Historically pre-pressurized systems, the casks would live in a cellar underneath the bar and there had to be a way of getting the beer out of the cask up to the, to the bar at the pub. And so these beer engines, you were literally pumping the beer from the cask down in the cellar up into the glass. Uh, so that is still a way they serve beer in the UK today. Angrams and whatnot are, are somewhat expensive. They can run over $500 for one. Reconditioned, uh, maybe like $380, $400. But there's a new manufacturer. Well, actually not new. Mason's is the name of the manufacturer. They're an old company. They're making them for hundreds of years. But they're now making a homebrew or not a homebrew, but a home pub version beer engine. So they've kind of gotten rid of a lot of the really high end and in, you know, a pub is going to go through hundreds of pints in a night. So they, they got rid of a lot of that horsepower, if you will. You you say that though, but there's been a lot of pubs that have bought in these. That's right. Yes. They're so inexpensive in the UK that a lot of pubs are buying them for their, for their own pubs. So, um, so we, we picked up a couple of them, had them shipped over from the UK. Um, you know, with shipping, not, not cheap, but, uh, it was actually cheaper to buy them in a a group. I think we bought three and brought them over. And what's really killer about this setup is it comes with pretty much everything you need to connect to whatever you're trying to connect to. So it comes with all the, they call it piping, but it comes with the hoses, the tubing, uh, that's insulated, which is pretty slick. Uh, really easy to connect to a corny keg. Just uh, put on a ball lock on the end. Comes with connections so you can do a bag and box. And then uh, also for a poly pin or also for a cask. The plan for you to use actual casks, like, you know, uh, again, 
folks might not know what these things are. A, a, a real cask is you. You see, it looks like it's not stainless steel. What are they made out of? Stainless steel. Is it yeah. stainless? Or it's yeah. just not polished, I guess. No, it's not. Yeah. So in the, uh, it's a stainless steel. Uh, looks like it looks like a, a barrel. barrel. Yeah, like a small barrel tipped on its side with a tap on the front mm-hmm. and a bunghole on the top. Correct. And so, are you you pulling beer from one of those guys? Like, because um, that's a type of thing that once it's open, it's open, right? You you gotta you gotta smash that beer. I mean, you can put, and they now make cask breathers. I mentioned that before, so you can uh, have a way of breathing CO2 onto the cask and and they do last about a month or so that way. Casks are really expensive. The small ones are called pins, five gallons. The about 10 gallon size is called a firkin. They are really pricey compared to like a corny keg. Uh, So I know a bunch of people who have them. I have made beer for casks, but uh, for my home setup right now, I am, you know what? I spent all the money on the beer engine. I've already got corny kegs. Purists are going to kill me um, for saying what's that. Di- what's the difference though? Seriously, like, all right, the purists, like, okay, yeah. I mean, sit on your high horse and yell <laughs> sure, at the sure. people sitting but What the hell's the difference? So really the difference is it's laying on its side. It's horizontal. So big thing about British beer is dropping bright. Um, so you want that beer to drop super clear. The, the shorter the distance from the top of the beer to the bottom of the beer, right? Like a lager tank, the quicker the beer drops bright. A cask sits on its side for pretty much the exact same reason. Otherwise, now I can find a beer with gelatin just the same, package it off the, you know, off the conical. You're telling me people are spending crazy amounts of money just so beer can be on its side? Yeah, probably. Um, all right. So here, well, I, I'm trying to think. Purists, so I'm sure there are some other reasons for that. No, I'm, now I got to think about what our next get rich scheme is. Uh, <laughs> Is there a way? So I'm trying to think. All right. So on a uh, traditional ball lock corny keg, we could store one of those bad boys on its side, right? That's not hard. What can we do to the lid of it? Can we have something that we can pull beer out of the lid versus out of the dip tube? I mean, you could always uh, pour beer out of your gas post instead. And that's that's probably too high. Oh, oh, no. I guess you could actually. I'm thinking about this. You could just swap your put your 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 liquid out on the top and your gas in on the bottom. So you could do that. So you what you there are some people who do this. First, you need a keg that seals really tight because we all know sometimes if you haven't pressurized your corny keg and give it a slosh around the you know, unless that lid is really, really tight, it will leak. But you could run gas through the the liquid outpost because um, if it's laying on its side then the gas is going to be all, you know, and you kind of want to elevate it a little bit at the back. So that would put the gas up, you know, through that dip tube all the way up at the back at the top. And then you would just pour beer out of basically your, the old gas in, and you could put a floaty, one of those uh, torpedo floaty ball things in there too. And that, that could help. I mean, think about a keg, okay, right, so 20, this... 25 inches long, right? Now you're going to lay it on its side. That's pretty big. Well, it sounds like it'll be work great to drop <laughs> bright. No, I mean, is that uh, not sure, like, but if you've already uh, find it in your, uh, if you've already thrown the gelatin in your conical, then what does it matter? Well, I, I suppose that I'm, um, I've grown accustomed to just pissing people off on this. Yeah, so yeah, I'm going to yeah. say, fuck the purest cast guys. Oh boy. <laughs> I know too many of those guys. Yeah, they're, they're, literally, they're probably listening to this. Yeah. Well, the hell with you needing an actual cask. We figured it out. You'll get, you know, I guarantee you, um, what you're going to do. Here's what you're going to do. We're going to tell everybody you have a cask. You're not really going to get one. We're going to take one of your corny kegs and pour it aside. We'll have your purists come to your house and have a few pints 
minds pulled off of that and they'll never know the difference and they'll they'll expose how pure they are so what i'm actually the the what i'm really looking forward to in uh some of these guys are nirax guys so they're new england real ale exhibition it's a big beer fest for only nirax is amazing uh, just for those guys that are listening to purists <laughs> go back to them i love nirax you guys are awesome <laughs> so i am really excited to try there's this method of doing cascale in the uk called beer in a bag and i've been chatting with some of these guys on a, a text chat about trying this out and uh they're pretty interested to see how this works hopefully yeah, so am works. i you've you've mentioned this before so like going back to the whole the dropping bright thing yeah. you probably don't want to do that in a bag you don't so you would want to find your beer in whatever uh fermenter you're using whether like for me i do have a conical bud whether it's a bucket or a spidal or whatever it is you would want to find it with gelatin there before you move it to the bag and people might be having a hard time imagining this yeah but yeah, but yeah. this is basically i'm trying to think of what the equivalent would be well uh, i guess not too many people would would know like uh the so like how soda is delivered in a draft system they probably don't realize that it's more like wine in a box but yeah yeah i was gonna say because th- that that's essentially what soda is when you have it hooked up in an actual restaurant commercial system it's just a bag of syrup that pulls into the carbonated water but yeah if you think about a boxed wine that bag that sits inside the box wine with a little tap at the bottom that's what we're talking about here but but larger yeah your boxed wines are three liters maybe five liters uh i'm talking 10 to 20 liters so 10 liters is about two and a half gallons and 20 liters is a full almost a full five and you've got these things that just like flopping around your house somewhere. Uh, so I, I have taken my uh, ESB or not ESB. It's a best bitter. And I've done two of the bags. I primed it in the bag, which uh, right there is scary as shit to think that you've basically potentially got a bomb right there because um, the bag is not as. Well, these things um, must be rated for some sort of carbonation. No, 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 not at all. <laughs> so. <laughs> Yeah, over here's here's the beer in a bag thing. So over in the UK, they're doing um, beer in bags in boxes as a to-go thing because all these cask breweries don't have a way of packaging beer because all they do is beer by cask and they send it to the pub and because the pub culture over in the uk is completely different than over here it's very much like the beer garden culture in central europe they they don't very few breweries there package in bottles very few packaging cans or if they do they're not doing it to the extent of say probably relatively easy for somebody like a night shift to pivot from a lot of kegs and cans to mostly cans right but for these breweries over there they they don't have mobile canners that are running around the country and if they do there you know there's a lot of breweries over there to get to so they are still casking their beer and still um, conditioning it and then venting it and then they pour it into or they rack it into these bags so it's already at the one and a quarter one and a half volumes when they put it in the bag and it's already dropped bright right they're basically using the casks as a bright tank um, so they're able to follow their whole process all the same then they fill the bags throw them in a box put it up for uh, 35 quid or 40 quid online and and sell it and they're even delivering it for free yeah i mean imagine that free beer delivery it just sounds wonderful um well i I gotta tell you i'm pretty excited for this uh, little venture to to kick off and and i'm really excited too because uh in addition to this i think you've gotten the green light recently to do a little pub in your shed outdoor space yeah Uh, yeah. so i'm pretty stoked to see beer in a box 
the the beer engine cast beer flowing and us hanging out in there again it's going to be a pretty cool venture to to be a part of yeah someday when uh all this goes away well uh if i name it the winchester we'll just go in there hang out until this all blows over yeah so we'll uh we'll have to check back in and i don't know sometime in the future to see how that's going absolutely time for this week's beer review each week, we're going to review a beer submitted to us by a member of the Merrimack Valley Homebrew Club or from one of our listeners. Our guest judge is going to walk through the judging process as if this were a homebrew competition. All they know is the category of the beer, which this week is 30A Spice Herb Vegetable Beer. Now, for this beer style, you're supposed to provide some additional information. So the base style is a Gruet. Off of a dark English mild, it's a seven and seven percent ABV beer, and it was uh, brewed with wormwood, sweet gale, juniper tips, rosemary, cinnamon, and star anise. Yeah, so back with us is our uh, certified national BJCP judge, aka the Doc Nick. Welcome back. Hey, good to be here. Really looking forward to seeing the Green Fairy with this one. Uh, so you want to? You got your score sheet. You want to take us through it? Absolutely. This is a really, really interesting beer. When I first saw the ingredients, it obviously screams uh, Gruet. What's really interesting about this style, so 30A is sort of spice vegetable beer. It's sort of a catch-all style that allows you to sort of take a base style and adulterate it with different types of ingredients to sort of amplify it or change it a little bit. In this case, they decided to take a dark English mild and all, add all these different ingredients to create sort of a Gruet. It's almost like a, not a fruit salad, but uh, almost like a vegetable salad with the, the number of ingredients that are in here. So it's, it's very, very interesting. So right away, when I was looking well, at Nick, let me Let me ask you a quick question. Um, so when you're making a Gruet, you know, it's not exclusive to dark beers, light beers, because this is obviously, a, you know, a dark English beer. Looks like an English mild in my, a dark uh, English mild in my glass. So it, it's not, you don't have to be, if you're doing a gruel, it doesn't have to be light, doesn't have to be dark, doesn't have to be amber. This can be sort of run the gamut. Correct. And just so everyone knows, technically gruel isn't in the BJCP guidelines. It's just what we call a beer like this with these types of ingredients. So for those who don't know, gruets are a very ancient type beverage where beer was made before the, hop, the properties of hops were known. So instead of bittering the beer, or balancing that sweet fermented wort with hops, they were using different ingredients that had bittering or tannic properties like wormwood, sweet gale, juniper tips, rosemary, stuff like that. So it's a very kind of ancient style of beer. Uh, it's very interesting. The very few breweries make this beer anymore. Uh, Hops are so popular that why would you go back to something like this? But it's pretty interesting. The only brewery I can really think of off the top of my head, at least in New England, is uh, Earth Eagle, right? They, I think they yeah, do they brew it. Yeah, of them, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And their stuff's really, really interesting. They, oddly enough, too, um, if I'm not mistaken, one of theirs had wormwood in it, too. So they were also experimenting with that as uh, an addition to their, I think it was a Gruet, but, but for sure they've played with it. Yeah, and speaking of wormwood, obviously you made the allusion to the green fairy. Very common ingredient in absinthe. Contrary to popular belief, it does not make you hallucinogenic. I know that's a popular wise tale, but that's not exactly true. I do want to give a, a quick shout out 
So a good friend of mine from high school uh, in Spokane, Washington, he opened a brewery there and he specializes in doing these types of beers, Gruets, doing different, forging different ingredients, putting them in the beers. So shout out to Thomas Crossgree. He's about to open his own, his own brewery in Spokane uh, pretty soon here. But um, I mean, can we get some beer mail? Like, can you throw something (laughs) in a box and shoot it our way? We'll put it on the podcast form. He's actually brewing stuff currently to kind of prepare for his opening. So I can definitely uh, shoot him a message and, and, and see what he thinks. But uh, this is right up his wheelhouse. I think he would have a lot of a lot more information on this than I would. To be quite honest, I've judged many, many competitions. This is the, the first time I've ever had something like this. Uh, this is That's how rare this type of beer is. So let's dive right into it. As Phil noted, the base style, it, it's important for this style as I mentioned, sort of a catch-all for these types of beers. It's important to kind of state what the base style is so that the the judges have sort of a a baseline to judge it on. So the submitter stated it was a dark English mild and then said it was 7%. So right away, a red flag goes up because dark English milds aren't 7%. So there's already an issue here that is a little bit concerning. And I'll I'll get to what I think it should have been submitted as, but just for people that are are wondering uh, that that's a little bit high to be a sort of a dark English mile. Almost almost double, right? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. So getting to the beer itself, first thing when I pour into it, when I smell it, I get a lot of strong tea notes. It's very herbal. It's very malty. I get a little bit of mint, uh, so maybe some baking spices as it warms. So it's very inviting. It's very interesting smelling. The appearance itself, as, as Marco noted, it is dark brown. Um, a little bit of light tan, he- light tan head with um, decent retention. So it's a, it's a good looking beer overall. The taste itself, similar to kind of the smell, you get some of that, some of those um, tea and vegetable notes. Uh, it's slightly tart malt, a little bit of a caramel sweetness. There is no apparent bitterness. So as I, as I mentioned about Gruets, typically these were before hops were used. So I would suspect there are no hops in here. Um, the submitter didn't indicate, so there's really no way of telling. But I don't really detect any apparent bitterness from hops. But there is enough kind of tannins and slight astringency from the herbs to kind of counter that sweetness. Yeah, I was going to say, you might uh, tasting it right out of the end. And I went into this with a really fresh palate. Um, it perceived to be really bitter the first sip that I took. Um, but as I've, I've taken subsequent sips afterwards it's not really bitter at all it's just it was sort of the palate adjusting to it but as you're saying it's a, it's a bit of that like herbal astringency but not not really bitter so I, I was first sip i was like oh man this thing is crazy bitter but then it just faded away and then it hasn't come back once i adjusted to it absolutely yeah and i think there's a decent balance of the malt and the, the herbs uh, i think yeah. that's that's sort of what you want with a gruit you want that balance i think this uh this brewer nailed that so the mouthfeel itself, it's, it, like as I mentioned, it's a touch astringent and tannic, which you sort of suspect with these type of ingredients in the base beer. And also, as I mentioned, it's, it's a little boo- boozy for the style for an English mild. So <laughs> getting back to that, you know, if I was going to submit this as a base style, I probably would have done at 7%, I would have done it as 17A, which is British strong ale. I think that would fit nicely. The color, the, the maltiness, the ABV. I think that's what you wanted to do as submitting it as your base style. Other than that, it's a pretty solid beer. Judging this category is is very difficult. As I mentioned, it's a catch-all. So you have all these different types of beers that have 
some will have cinnamon, some will have rose water, some will have whatever. And trying to judge all those against each other is, is very difficult. But if I was going to give this one a score, uh, I'd probably give it a 31, which is which is pretty good. The the biggest knock, of course, is just the base style is, is inappropriate. And unfortunately, the, the beer gets docked heavily for that. Yeah, it makes me kind of curious uh, when, when somebody's developing a recipe for, for this how i'm just i i wish i knew how they landed and we'll, we'll end up asking the person how they landed on dark english mild uh, because i'm curious because in recipe development if you were targeting a dark english mild you wouldn't be at seven percent so either something went wrong during the process or they strictly just try to brew or grew it and were trying to do category placement after the fact which was probably more likely what it was i agree it's probably the latter that would yeah. make more sense to me yeah it's not bad i, I was ready to um hate this beer (laughs) when i I read it i'm like man there's a ton of stuff in there i'm not usually a fan of of gruets but but this is actually very reminiscent of a beer um and a beer that i would i would drink easily like it's it is really warming i actually think it's it's quite boozy even for seven percent but the the, what you talked about earlier with the balance it's actually really nice and uh um, i think all the flavors and the herbs and uh the because there was anise in here also too right phil correct yeah yeah anise and wormwood which are really i was expecting it to just be like a punch in your face of that licorice and it's not it's actually really nicely balanced with some sweetness it's it's actually it's pretty nice one thing that that helps is the fact that other groups that i've had they almost have like a belgian beer character to it I don't know if that's due to the ECUs or the different herbs. This doesn't really have that. I think that really helped a lot too. Nick, you mentioned uh, you you gave it a 31. Um, Was that primarily because the uh, base style was listed as a mild? Would you have given a a higher score or different score if it was a British strong ale or or a different style? I might. It's tough because when I I think of a gruet, maybe this is incorrect, I guess I don't think of a high percentage beer, and maybe that's just my ignorance on that. So I, I may be docking it a bit there. The other issue too is you have all these different ingredients in here, and I'd have a hard time picking out each one of these. And that's that's pretty important. When you put an ingredient in this style, you want the judges to be able to, pr- to pick out those. And so I, I can't say that I pick out rosemary compared to juniper tips. Even as Barkham mentioned, the star anise, I, I, I really, maybe if I really look carefully, really kind of taste it carefully, I might be able to pull that out, but it, it might be kind of difficult. So all these different ingredients that are added, it, it's hard to tell where one starts and one ends. I think that sort of docks it a bit too. I, I would probably try and simplify it a little bit, uh, maybe keep the traditional stuff like the wormwood, the sweet gale, and maybe the juniper tips and maybe maybe drop the rest. It's just when you add all that stuff, you're going to have judges looking for it. If they don't get it, then you're going to get docked for it. Gotcha. I also, also don't think I've ever seen a dark gruet before. Um, you know, I, not that not that I'm a pro in gruets by any means, and uh, I certainly haven't had that many. But the ones that I have had have been lighter or paler beers. And I actually like how some of the darker malts work with those herbs where i haven't necessarily liked how paler malts have worked with it so again i would drink this beer i wouldn't drink a ton of it you know it's probably a a a 12 ounce pour for me and and i'm good but but i I would drink it and drink all of it and and i would enjoy the glass for sure agreed all right well uh so that wraps up this session for 
uh, our judging. Thanks, Nick, for for joining us and and trying out a Gruit in a style that's uh, pretty ambiguous and and uh, an interesting one to be judging today. So appreciate the time, guys, and we'll catch you guys next time. If you like what you've been hearing on our show, hit that subscribe or follow button on your podcast service. And if you have any ideas or feedback for us, leave us a review or shoot us a DM on Instagram at StrikeMashBoil. Or join the conversation in our Facebook group, facebook.com slash groups slash MVHBC. All right, this week we have a special guest joining us, Brett Bauer, who is previously the lead brewer at one of our favorite local breweries in Massachusetts, Idle Hands. Uh, Idle Hands is well known for Belgian beers, German lagers, and more and more these days for New England IPAs. Brett then moved down to Tennessee to Heaven and Ales, but he recently left the professional brewing world to return to the biotech industry. And while he's left professional brewing, he has now joined us as a home brewer. So we're going to dig into Brett's background, learn a little bit of about his experiences as a pro brewer, and dig into his plans as he grows into being a home brewer. Yeah, Brett, thanks for joining us. I have to say you um, have the distinct honor of being our first pro guest on the show. So we appreciate you taking some time and joining us. Awesome. I'm very, uh, very happy to be here and you know, grateful to talk to you guys. You get to live in infamy, number one. <laughs> Yeah, like you know, ex ex pro right now, ex pat. <laughs> We're a, still gonna I'm call you a pro. You've done, yeah, yeah, true. Yeah, you've 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 come back to the civilian yeah. life. I can I can go back on Untapped. I can I can get flights all I want now. And, and you can be honest on Untapped now, right? Uh, no more no ratings. You know, you can actually rate beers on Untapped. Uh, I, I'm still I can't bring myself to do that. <laughs> uh, so uh, we figured we'd, we'd kick this off. You know, a, a bunch of folks are probably familiar with you and familiar with your time at Idle Hands, but we'd love to hear uh, from you uh, a little mm-hmm. bit about your background, uh, where you started, um, how you kind of grew into or got attracted to the beer industry, um, you know, before you got your first gig. So we'd love to, to just get a little bit of your background. Sure. Um, yeah, so I, I got my start. Um, Idle Hands Craft Ales was my first job. It kind of came about after, you know, I was still working in the biotech industry in Cambridge. Um, you know, my background is in chemistry and, you know, started, you know, once I moved to the Boston area right out of college, I just, you know, tried to get involved in the beer industry. So it started with me, you know, volunteering for beer advocates festivals. Um, I would, I was living in Watertown, so I'd stop at, you know, Craft Beer Cellar Belmont about every Friday to get like a random mix six pack. Um, and that ended up, turning into a part-time gig at Craft Beer Cellar Belmont, where I got to meet more people in the industry. And then that's when I got to know Chris, um, who also, also happens to be uh, a University of New Hampshire alum, just like me. Weird, uh, weird connection there. And I started volunteering for Idle Hands on the side, so just uh, helping out with um, bombing sessions, um, the occasional um, festival, and then... Um, I kind of started getting that itch to like, you know, do I really want to try and pursue this career in brewing? And I was looking up the American Brewers Guild um, and the Greg Newman Scholarship specifically, and it needed a letter of recommendation. So um, had to get one from a professional brewer and one from you know someone else in the industry. So I approached Chris, um, asked him, hey, can you write this letter of recommendation for me? And it just so happened to be at the exact right time where uh, Sean Nolan, who is also Cambridge Brewing Company and is now uh, one of the owners and brewers of Honest Weight, Arts and Nails, was just getting ready to leave Idle Hands 
to start Honest Ways. And they were kind of like low-key looking for someone to join on. So Chris offered me a job on the spot. Um, so I had to like choose that night to uh, take a 60% pay cut, lose all my benefits, and go make beer working under Ben Howe and Chris uh, Chikach. So uh, I, I said yes. There was <laughs> I knew I would, um, if I said no, I would go into work the next day, I would sit at my desk, I'd hate myself for the rest of my life if I didn't take this chance. So, um, and I knew getting to work under Ben House was going to be amazing. He was going to teach me everything I needed to know to have a successful career. Um, and sure, if he did, I got to work under, I got, I, I got the, uh, so to circle back again, got the Greg Newton Scholarship, um, which Ben Howe was also the recipient. He was the first, I think I was like the fifth in 2014. Um, so I got a free ride to the American Brewers Guild. Uh, started brewing under Ben. Um, it's just, you know, me and him working all the time. Uh, we were the production staff and that was it. You know, when Idle Hands was a, like, four-person team back then in that gross Everett warehouse. I remember it well. Right? No one, no one forgets those bathrooms. We're always reminded of that. <laughs> and then, yeah, um, Idle Hands, you know, we were still in that warehouse. And then about a year later, it was when, like, everything kind of felt like it was coming apart the Everett casino was happening chris was you know getting the he got his like building basically like bought out from under him um ben got his job in denmark so he was leaving um and for some like for some reason i i stuck it out with chris um you know still believed in what he was doing and sure enough like that was when we got to move a couple tanks to night shift. We were doing the tenant brewing there. I stuck through that. Um, and then, sure enough, signed a lease in Malden. Um, got to help them, you know, build out that place. Um, a lot of pieces that, we, you know, we had to do by hand to save a couple bucks. And, um, yeah, set myself up to be, you know, lead brewer as soon as that place opened up. And then spent about three years there. And, uh, yeah, it was it was really rewarding, um, very challenging. Uh, loved every day of it. The thing that I, I find pretty fascinating is, um, you know, taking a dive into the industry, not being a, a home brewer first. So many examples of folks that want to uh, be pro brewers are, you know, making hooch in their bathtub at some point, you know, like we're all, all doing something uh, crazy. So you, you, you did the formal training route. You were really into the industry and, and you decided to go down the formal training route. What was that like? You know, it, was it basically working in a production brewery and just learning on the job? Like what, what was that all about? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll be honest with you guys. I did actually do a little homebrewing before that. Um, first time I ever homebrewed was maybe I was a senior in college um and i had i think it was like christmas time with my family and i had just sort of like yeah that's when i was kind of exploring the craft beer industry like you know when i was going to get my beer for the weekend in college like you know there were two aisles in the grocery store one was like your macros get your 30 racks and all that kind of thing and then the one like right next to it was the cooler with all the craft beer and like i just saw all these six packs and like i always wanted to try and find that like one go-to one i was gonna like just just drink all the time, not to think about it, and like, you know, something offered locally and delicious. So that's where kind of like the pot starts turning of like, oh, like, is there a chance I could do this myself? And so happened that my uncle, you know, back when he was 
in his you know 20s and 30s he had done some homebrewing as well so he's like oh yeah i'll send you the equipment so i had no idea what i was getting sure enough a box showed up at my apartment um back in durham and open it up i'm like i have no idea what's going to come it was a plastic bucket an airlock and a capper and that was it so from there i kind of like pieced some stuff together me and two buddies of mine we found like the biggest pot that we could find and we did our first partial mash beer um, and i think it was some brown ale we our pot was only like half the right size so we did this weird thing where we like poured some wort off into another pot and like as it was boiling off we'd add it like back in and yeah i was a terrible home brewer that's awesome. <laughs> well, I think we all have, uh, well, I, I can certainly speak for myself saying that the first homebrew beer I made was pretty awful. The fact that I decided to do it again is miraculous because my first was pretty horrible. At least you had a bucket and an airlock. I started with the Mr. Beer kit and the thing was, oh my God, terrible. <laughs> Actually, that was uh, the Mr. Beer kind of a little piece, Matt, because I first got the idea, I was in a speech writing class in college professor's name is actually Michael Jackson. He went by that. So strange. We had to do a speech on like how to do something, like explain to the class how to do something. And one other student in the class basically came in. He's like, I'm going to tell you how to make beer. And it was with a Mr. Beer kit. And that's where I got that first thing. We're like, hey, I could do this myself. True story. I, I, I was a pretty confident 18-year-old. Uh, thinking that I could do it, uh, and and it just didn't work out so hot. Now, now, don't get me wrong. We all drank the beer. It was awful, but we mm -hmm. certainly drank it. We couldn't buy beer, but we could make it, and that that worked mm -hmm. out for us. Uh, so yeah, all right. So then, jumping into the formal training, though. So you you sounds like you got a taste of brewing as a home brewer, uh, but what was what was the formal training like? So I took part in what's called the Intensive Brewing Sciences and Engineering Program at. The American Brewers Guild it's run sounds by, invigorating. It's oof, yeah, it's it's intense. That's for sure. It's about a twenty-one week course. Uh, it's all distance learning on DVDs. You have about anywhere between like three to seven hours of lectures per week, plus readings, plus weekly quizzes, and then there were three exams total. And then at the end of the whole program, you travel to Middlebury, Vermont, at Drop-in Brewing Company where the school is located and uh, you go through a week residency and there you have uh, Steve Parks, decades long educated brewer, brilliant at, at every aspect of it. Um, Jamie Shear, who I think is the quality control, like director or manager of Harpoon. Um, Dandel Grand, who does uh, like bison brewing, I think it was, like this organic contract brewery. Um, not to mention like these lectures are done by the brightest minds in the industry, Matt Brindleson, Garrett Oliver, um, at the time, uh, Greg Noonan, oh, who's the guy from Bell? Uh, John, John Mallett, uh, I think, is like the head brewer of Zero Gravity as well. But like all these guys who are just the, the brightest minds in the industry are here to like give you these video lectures. Um, so I get to glean a lot of information. Um, it's very science heavy, very math heavy, which uh, it was great. They actually require a lot of prerequisites, and me with my chemistry background worked great. Um, and even working in pharmaceuticals, I did the manufacturing side, so um, a lot of it's just like cleanliness organization, aseptic technique, following SOPs, like all those things you need to have a really solid um, footing in manufacturing, and then just taking that to the brewing industry and 
it, they're so interchangeable. It's, it's why I was so easily able to go back to where I am now. Well, at what point did um, they introduce you to being a, a pro brewer as basically a glorified janitor? Like, when do they when do they tell you that? Uh, they tell ABG. They don't quite tell you that because they're too busy like trying to teach you like the raw science or everything. Day one at Idle Hands, it's like, yeah, you're. I think uh, Chris took a picture of me like scrubbing the inside of the kettle, and you just see a big old <laughs> smile on my face. And yep, I was totally happy to doing what I was doing. Yeah, it's one of the things that, you know, us um, as home brewers uh, often aspire uh, to be pro brewers at some point. We were actually uh, talking about it before you came on for a minute. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we said, like, then there's the, the harsh reality of the things that are really required to become a professional. Number one, you mentioned earlier, there isn't a you're not going to get rich being a, a, a brewer, uh, but you'll, you'll you'll make some money, but you, you certainly won't become rich doing it. At least most folks don't don't get rich to it. You're doing it for the love of beer, not for the money. Uh, but the other part we, we were joking around about is uh, how labor intensive it is and that you do a shit ton of cleaning, you probably do more cleaning than you're doing brewing. And, uh, you know, I always, I was always curious if uh, that reality is put right out there for you when you're, you're taking the, the courses. Uh, I mean, they, they definitely try to hammer that into you as much as possible. It's just like cleanliness is so key. You know, you're, you're going into like the idea of like how yeast management is and like, yes, like you know, these things can, can infect, they can transfer easily. Like you're dealing with micros, like, and also, um, I mean, it was like I mentioned before, John Mallet, he is uh, from Bell's Brewery, and he goes into a really, really in-depth lecture on um, equipment management. And he he has some horrid pictures of equipment that has just been neglected over time. Uh, it's like the, the dental office when you see, like, the teeth that are, like, completely messed up. It's like, this is what happens if you don't take care of your equipment. And it's just, like, rusted out and broken and terrible looking. And you're like, I never want to have to deal with that in my job ever just, just do what do what everyone's telling you make sure it's clean hey brett so it's mike switzer here too i i have a molecular biology background too so i can uh, i can understand the, the pharmaceutical background and, and what it takes in the science and yeah. how you are already kind of paired for brewing from that aspect and probably really for lager brewing because it's really about controlling things controlling variables keeping things tight but what I'm actually curious about is when you're going through this, you know, brewing degree, there's a lot of art to brewing and, you know, mm -hmm. very much like being a great chef, like you have to you know, pull influences from different places and try things that are different. And we have guys at our club that do things that are completely off the wall and, you know, nine times out of 10, it might be a horrible disaster and we all mock them for it. But that one time, you know, blows I'm, I'm talking about pizza beer right now. Yeah, yeah it I blows figured. everybody's oh, mind and it changes the world. <laughs> so my question is, when you go through these, and having not done it myself, when you go through these brewing programs, like how much focus is it on like the art and really kind of trying to capture something that nobody else has done? Because you know, obviously from scientific background, you know that is easy to teach, but it's really hard to kind of capture that lightning in a bottle. And I always have wondered. You know, when you go through brewing programs, do people talk about that or are they interested in that? Or is it really just trying to give somebody a foundation and then, you know, you wait for that, you know, Da Vinci to come along? I mean, I think a lot of this, um, what the school is trying to teach is just like um, maintaining consistency, uh, quality control, just like that was, that was the big forefront. So I think there might have been like, I vaguely remember like one lecture on like recipe development, but it was it was more so just like 
really trying to make sure that like you are the best manufacturer you can be because that's that's what you're doing in pro brewing like this is this is now a manufacturing job like you know, yeah. i know like the industry right now is like really into one-offs and you know it's the same as homebrewing they're trying to do like these you know outlandish things that really like grab the attention um but a lot of those places still have to rely on a flagship beer and it's like you can't put that thing if you can't put out that beer like day in day out same quality over and over again um you're not going to last very long <laughs> right no no yeah, jimmy yeah. hendrix jimmy hendrix right <laughs> he did it he did a lot but he, he made something great <laughs> Yeah, and we, we definitely want to get your thoughts on, um, you know, the innovation and the current uh, current innovation in, in the beer industry. But we're not going to get to it right now. Because, I think you might have showed your cards. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> the well, I consistency feel like, I feel lost. like we're about to become uh, best friends, I think. I, that, that, oh, I, yeah. I get that impression. But so it, it sounds to me like the, the courses that you took set you up foundationally. And that art part that Switzer's talking about mm. sounds like that sort of role uh you know the mentorship got fulfilled by ben by ben howe right i mean he, he was the guy that basically started to you know start showing you the art that came along with the science i mean yeah like working alongside ben was a, a huge influence to me i think that's that's even why I'd, i'm kind of i would consider myself a quite the traditionalist like i remember him telling me like times remembering cosmos and he you know he would hear people say to him, like, oh, like, why aren't you putting coffee and chocolate in this? Like, well, I can create those wonderful flavors using the four ingredients of beer. Like, that that always really resonated with me. It's like, yes, I can take these these four ingredients. I can create these wonderful flavors without having to just, like, dump that flavor, dump that additive in, dump that adjunct mm -hmm. in. And I think that's that's a lot harder to do. That's I, I take a lot more pride in that. Yeah, I, I actually remember, um, you know, I, I, and I don't know if you ever had the opportunity to see where Ben started, but Ben started in that little garage uh, in Lowell that was about uh, three quarters of a mile from my mom's house. And the beers he was putting out of that place uh, were pretty impressive. It ended up turning into Navigation Brewing afterwards when he moved yeah. down to uh, Idle Hands. Um, mm -hmm you know, the, the navigation guys moved in there. Uh, so, I mean, it must've been pretty wild working with Ben and, and just seeing what he was able to do with pretty limited resources. I mean, he's, he's the most imaginative brewer I've known. Like, tell me one other person who's doing method champenois beer in the U S yeah, but there, there probably isn't. Yeah. Well, any. you can tell by I our mean, silence. It's, right? it's, <laughs> it's a horribly, uh, laborious <laughs> process. Like, I mean, as soon as Ben left, Chris was like, we're absolutely never doing that again. And, shows we haven't <laughs> i still remember how to do it i did do it once after ben left uh to make a a champagne hard cider for a friend's wedding so i still still got it yeah if you want to kick that over to us that'd be great um <laughs> i have i have one bottle left <laughs> and it's, it's well past its prime yeah the beer brute i have one bottle left um maybe i'll break that out and, and crack it open if you're saying it's maybe past its prime <laughs> i but, would uh... say any of Ben's beers right now. He he would agree. I've definitely seen him chime in a couple times when someone will post that they drank his beer. He's like, I think it's a little past. <laughs> I drank my last brute uh, New Year's Eve. Uh, 2019. Oh, and I think that you, actually, I'm, I'm thinking about this though. Um, I think technically, didn't Sam Adams do that champagne beer? It's called like Infinium or something. Yeah, oh, I think yes. it was Infinium. Sam yeah, Adams, they, they did a, uh, they did a champagne beer. Yeah, my sponsor. Yeah, they. 
collab. They did. I don't think they did proper method champagne though. I no, I don't. No, I, I think it was just like a sparkling beer. Like now, now when you say you did method champenoise, were you were you putting the necks into salt, cold salt water, and then actually purging the yeast and then corking? Yeah, uh, it wasn't wow. cold salt water. Uh, dry ice and green alcohol. Or glycol, or yeah, wow. Dry All right, you're a monk. Um, you're there a monk. was there was riddle, <laughs> we did riddling, disgorgement. The things were primed to like you know over four volumes of CO two. Uh, it was. It was absolutely a real deal, and yes, but how was hazy deal. was your IPA? <laughs> <laughs> Wait, so that's a real measure of a brewer, right? Well, <laughs> so you were doing that too. Fi- you doing that in like 2013. <laughs> um, you, you were firing off these frozen yeast plugs into like a box somewhere, or were you guys trying to do like distance shots with these things? As your <laughs> no, we had a we had a trash can with a hole cut out that was. Upside down. That's awesome. That sounds like the safe way to do it. Yes. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. We all wear safety goggles. Definitely wear safety <laughs> Always goggles. wear your safety goggles. Especially when you're, yeah, firing yeast. All right. So, I mean, you you have this time to uh, work with Ben, kind of, I'm not going to say, you know, mentorship, you, you have a lot of learning experience, but at some point, you know, the, the reins get handed over to you. What was that like? Uh, it was a, a slow, gradual process, mostly because, you know, Idle Hands was kind of homeless for like a year where we I think we closed at that shop at like 2015 and then reopened or end of end of summer 2015 and then beginning of midsummer 2016 is when we reopened in Malden which um I mean I'll say kudos to Chris like to to go from having no location to opening your doors for a brewery in with less than a year is an insane accomplishment for any any brewery owner that he, he did that really well. He, he knew what he was going into the second time around, which was great. But, but I imagine, I, I imagine the pressure that comes with following these guys up is pretty immense, right? I mean, uh, oh, I, I'm absolutely. sure you felt confident that them trusting you uh, with, you know, taking on that role uh, spoke volumes to the skill set that you had, uh, but it's got to feel, it's got to be nerve wracking. It's got to be pretty tough. Like they're now trusting you with, with keeping it going. I, I never took it for granted. Like I was, that was a fight every day. Just like I, Idle Hands was something that I had. I had to go in to work every day, and I had to live up to that. Um, you know, for 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 Chris and Grace, you know, for for Ben wherever he was, and like for you know everyone on the staff. Then you know, we I I definitely went in with the mindset of like, you know, I I might be steering the ship, but like I'm gonna make it happen. I'm gonna, I'm gonna live up to what Idle Hands' reputation has always been, and that's just putting out like accurate consistent quality beer every time now when you guys um <clears throat> moved to malden uh is that where I, I don't remember if in everett you guys were making loggers is that when you started the logger program was in malden nope loggers were started in everett if i remember correctly the german program launched like maybe just before i started and that was more of a brainchild of chris and Sean Nolan now at On Its Way. Uh, I believe they started with Deer de Das, which was a Dunkelweiss, not a lager yet, but they, they that was their first foray into the German style beers. And then I think the next one was Clara. I think the next was the Dortmund. I love that beer. And then followed and then followed Adelaide and Brunhilde. Oh, Brunhilde, man. Oh, <laughs> I'm so I'm so jealous that they finally decided to put Brunhilde into cans 
after I left. I fought. I tried to fight that battle. I tried to fight that battle one winter. I was like, "Hey, I got this tank open. Like, can I? Can you burn help? Can you put it in can? No." (laughs) (laughs) They did it right after I left. And then when Ben was there, I think Ben helped bring about Heidi and Brocktoberfest. And then uh, my first entry was Emelyn, of course. What what type of uh, techniques were you using for your loggers? I mean, did you go as traditional as you could? I mean, a lot of us think of Chris Loring and Notch and, and just the, you know, 16-hour brew day that he does to turn I mean, out a beer. <laughs> We we don't have the capability what Chris has, what Chris right. Boring has. You do. He's he's brilliant. Um, he, he's got the strongest ethos in the brewing industry, like bar none. He is out to recreate, emulate everything that Eastern European beer culture has, and he nails it. We did with I think the one time we did like a he invited us to do a tenant brew uh, when Notch first opened. I think he was doing a couple of those uh, with a few people. And man, when he asked me, like, my heart just, like, grew. I was like, I can't believe you're asking me to, like, go brew on your friend. Like, oh, shit. <laughs> Sorry, what was the but question? still, <laughs> you know, and I would say, you know, he is obviously using every technique and putting tremendous amount of time, effort, and, and money into making yeah. a beer. But I, but all of us, you know, as home brewers, there are people on different levels. There are people that spend a lot of time and use every technique and and you know, dedicate yeah. themselves to recreating a beer. But there are also people that, that find a way to make a great beer and not put, you know, endless hours and everything into it. And I mean, if you can make a great beer and not do that, that's something too. And I, that's, you guys were doing lagers in a different way, very successfully. And what do you yeah. think contributed to that? I think that was just our, our usual ethos is that, that attention to detail that we're trying to put out something that is, you know, as, accurately and like as sound as possible to style like just that traditionalist mentality um but yeah like you know we don't idle hands never had horizontal lagering tanks um mm-hmm. i think we got spunding valves maybe like a year or two after malden opened but for us it was just that attention to detail um true story uh i think it was the fifth batch of beer we brewed at malden we did a batch of adelaide and this was our fifth year on a new, brand new system, like still in tons of debt. And that beer was not up to stuff. Down the drain, the whole thing went. Wow. Cheers. Yeah, you yeah. know what? Yeah, I'm going to say we, kudos we knew, because. We knew that <laughs> this was going to, like, we're about to, like, reintroduce Adelaide to the world. And, like, this is one that, like, we poured so much into. We, we hung our hats on when we were in an effort. And, like, if we put out this batch that's, like, just not up to stuff, doesn't matter. Like that beer didn't last a week in the tank because as soon as we we recognized it a few days in, we're just like, nope, not the stuff. Down it goes. Yeah, there are a lot of breweries uh, that would just slap a different name on it and try to get it out there and make some money. Uh, so kudos to mm-hmm. uh, keeping up to the the quality that you guys are expect you expected yourselves to put out there. We, we definitely appreciate that. Uh, so then you have this, uh, you know, beer style New England IPA. That starts to explode uh, across the, the the planet, and uh, so obviously, Idle Hand starts putting out their New England IPAs: four seam, uh, two seam. I mean, I've, I've, like all the numbers of seams. Uh, so, talk about that. You know, you you build this there's this logger program going on, doing it pretty well. Uh, then you have the New England IPA explosion that happens. Yeah. So I mean, for us, like it it kind of didn't start with the seams or. 
I think change up or yeah, two seam was the first, and then like we started doing change up afterwards. This was like the the rotating one to kind of like just you know explore the style a little bit more. Um, but back when we were in Everett and Enlightenment was still part of it, we were doing Hoffman, his Galaxy Double Pale Ale, and Keezy, uh Citra IPA, and like the, that definitely gave us a good like footing to start. But yeah, and then you know, forcing took over. Man, I think I I was following something on Facebook and like I saw someone had put out like you know they were on batch ninety nine maybe like a couple of months ago to think about wow. how how much that beer is overshadowed what I was produced. I think when I left like uh, there was a time when like triplication was like by far the highest one. Triplication maybe when Malden opened was that around like in the batch like thirties range. And then maybe by the time I left Idle Hands, Forcim only being produced for like two years had already hit that 60. So I think we're going to look back on this era and it'll be like disco, right? We'll be like, wow, there was great music before and then after. And we all love New England IPAs. Um, I'm, I'm an admitted, you know, lager head. I love lager and really love everything that goes into it. And it's, you can do great things with New England IPAs too, but it's it's unbelievable how it's just kind of taken over all the bandwidth of brewing for a while. Now, Switzer, I, I also like New England IPAs. What I'm not a huge fan of is where they are, where they've been going, right? Like so only IPAs, right? Like yeah. I like to listen to a lot of different <laughs> music. It's just yeah, it's yeah. everything. I have two questions for you guys. Like one. I mean, do you think that hazy IPAs don't have maybe the footing, or they, they have the lasting power of what, like, American adjunct lager has right now? And two, where are they going? Do tell. Before Marco goes on a rant answering that question, I think we're going to pause here for this show. We'll continue the conversation with Brett in a couple weeks. Next week, though, we have our first ever beer off. We're going to walk through a specific style of beer and taste some commercial examples and homebrew examples. We'll tell you who's doing that style well and who isn't. It's going to be a lot of fun, so stay tuned for that next week here on Strike Mash Boil. The Strike Mash Boil podcast is produced by the Merrimack Valley Homebrew Club, an American Homebrewers Association sanctioned club. Follow us on Instagram at MVHBC. Join the conversation in our Facebook group, facebook.com slash groups slash MVHBC. And check out our website at MVHBC.com. <laughs>